You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics. This is the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. We do encourage you to go to the website bellatorchristie.com and uh, click subscribe and there you will receive all the podcasts and uh, posts as they appear in your inbox absolutely free. And our podcast is also uh, on iTunes, TuneIn Radio app, as well as for the first time ever on Stitcher. So we encourage you to go there, listen to the podcast, and click subscribe. We would greatly appreciate that. And if you have any of these podcasts or any of the articles that you enjoy that that bless your heart, uh, we encourage you to help us out by sharing them on social media uh, so that we can let other people know about the ministry that we have here at Bellator Christie. Again, we do take up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics as we step into the arena of ideas. And today, we have a very special arena that we are going to enter as we discuss uh, the issue of abortion. Uh, Abortion is a matter of great political controversy in our times. However, the Christian worldview is built upon the understanding that all human life or all human lives are made in the image of God. If we go to the uh, book of Genesis chapter 1 uh, in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the heavens over the livestock and over all the earth over all creeping things that creeps upon the earth and it goes on to verse 27 to say so god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them so christianity the christian worldview that is Uh, is very pro-life. It uh, indicates the fact that all lives matter. Therefore, Christianity is an extremely 
pro-life worldview, both in the here and now, and obviously in eternity, as we find in Jesus Christ. With us today, we have Mr. Clinton Wilcox, who is a staff apologist with Life Training Institute and a certified speaker and mentor with Justice for All. He specializes in training pro-life people to make the case for life effectively and persuasively. So, Mr. Wilcox, thank you for joining us today on the Bellator Christie Podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So, Clinton, if you will, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to faith in Christ. Okay, well, um, I live in Fresno, California. Um, I've been working for Life Training Institute now for about two years, and I've been involved in the pro-life movement now for about uh, six years, going on seven years. Uh, It's just that this is the area that I feel that God has has led me into as far as uh, any particular uh, sort of of ministry or anything like that. Um, Yeah, I I actually came to Christ, uh, faith in Christ at an early age. I was about four years old, and I was going to a, a Baptist church at the time. They were having their vacation Bible school. And the pastor uh, was talking about, um, you know, near, near the end of, of the week-long vacation Bible school, was talking about uh, sin and what it meant. And I just kind of felt, uh, you know, felt God uh, leading me to make that that confession of faith and repent my sins, uh, even from an early age. And uh, ever since then, it just kind of took off. Uh, I was later baptized around the age of 10 on Easter Sunday. And, uh, yeah, I just separated from there. Amen. Amen. Um, now, you work in the area of, of um, pro-life apologetics, and obviously we're speaking about uh, helping people to understand that uh, life begins, human life begins in the womb, and, uh, and, and of course, li- human lives matter, and of course, this is against abortion. And so, uh, biblically speaking, why is it important for Christians to defend the pro-life stance? Well, it's important for Christians to defend the pro-life stance for a couple of reasons. That, number one, uh, if, it, if it's true, if the pro-life argument is true, that, that, um, that abortion kills innocent human beings, um, then it behooves us all to stand up against this injustice because this is something that, that God would want us to do. Um, he told us, you know, we, we read in Scripture that we're exhorted to uh, speak up for those who have no voice or to, uh, to you know, defend those who are being led away to the slaughter. Uh, we're constantly called to defend the people who are being oppressed. And uh, all throughout, uh, all throughout you know, Christian history, this kind of thing has gone on. Uh, the early Christians would, uh, would take the infants in ancient Rome who were being left out to die and take them and, and rescue them and save them. It was Christians who, was respons- who were responsible for ending the slave trade in England and for opposing slavery and civil rights abuses in the United States. So uh, even though there is a significant portion of pro-life people who are not religious, uh, it behooves every religious person to stand up against abortion because it is the human rights abuse of our time. And if we, uh, if we claim to love God, who, uh, who created all of us in His image, then we have a responsibility to to protect those who those other uh, of the the ones who bear God's image, and uh, it, it's an obligation for us to stand up and, and protect them. And so that's why every Christian, I think, needs to get involved in in some way in opposing abortion. Amen, and very well said. 
you know, and, and like you say, I mean, you know, life matters. You know, Christians stands up, stand up for injustices uh, for individuals outside the womb. So naturally, it stands to reason that we would do the same uh, for individuals inside the womb as well. So what arguments do we have uh, to support the belief that life begins at conception? Now, obviously, in our society, we hear many people say that, or many people make the accusation that that, uh, the the fetus within the womb is just a mass of tissue. Uh, What can we as Christians, uh, or what arguments do we as Christians have to support the belief that, uh, that... that fetus really is a human being. Yeah, the argument that the unborn are just a clump of cells is really just a scientifically confused and scientifically ignorant statement. It's true that at the very beginning of a human being's life, they appear to be a mass of cells, but they're not merely a mass of cells. That, that's really to confuse what a thing is with what a thing is made of. It, uh, it, it, even though it looks like it's a mass of cells, uh, it's really a highly organized individual that, uh, that directs its own development from within. And so to say that um, it's, it's just a clump of cells, um, it, it's, um, it's really just confused because it's exactly what every human being looks like at that stage in its development. So the arguments that we have to support the, the view that human life begins with fertilization, uh, we have arguments from science and we have arguments from philosophy. And it's important to keep those two distinctions separate. Uh, we don't want to confuse them because they're two different questions. So first we have the science. The science of embryology, ever since the late 1800s, has supported the view that human life begins with fertilization. In fact, Alan Guttmacher, who would go on to become a president of Planned Parenthood, wrote in a book in 1933 that we now know that human life begins in the body of a woman from the fertilization of the sperm and the ovum. And this all seems so simple and evident that it's difficult to understand that it's difficult to picture a time when it wasn't part of the common knowledge. So the scientific uh, information regarding human development is that um, is that all human life begins at fertilization. From the from the earliest stage of fertilization, from the single cell zygote stage, the uh, the human being is a living, whole, distinct organism. We know it's alive because it exhibits the properties of living things. It metabolizes food for energy, it responds to stimuli, it it grows through cellular reproduction, and it maintains homeostasis, which is just a a fancy word indicating that it it regulates its own internal temperature to keep itself alive. So we know that it's alive, we know that it's human, because it has human DNA, and it's it's the product of human parents. And in general, things reproduce after their own time. Cats produce cats dogs produce dogs, and humans produce human offspring. So we know it's alive, and we know that it's human. We also know know that it's a distinct individual. It's not a part of the mother's body. There's a law, uh, a law in mathematics called the law of transitivity, in which if A is a part of B, and B is a part of C, then A is a part of C. So if my finger is a part of my hand, and my hand is a part of my body, then my finger is a part of my body. So if the, if the unborn organism were merely a part of the woman's body, like one of her appendages, then it would be true that every pregnant woman has, uh, you know, four legs, four arms, two heads, uh, two noses, and roughly half the time uh, functioning male genitalia. But that's obviously absurd. The unborn organism is connected to the mother by the umbilical cord, but it's not the umbilical cord that directs 
the, the embryo's development. The embryo directs its own development from within. So, it's, so we also so we know that it's alive. We know that it's human, and we know that it's a distinct individual. We also know that it's an organism, because from the earliest the earliest stage of fertilization, it's on a self-directed path of development, developing itself from within into a more mature version of itself along the path of human development. At no time uh, does the woman's body direct its development. The unborn the unborn embryo, him or herself, directs its own development, uh, and all of the embryo's parts work together for the good of the whole to keep itself alive. So we know that it's from fertilization, it's a living, human, uh, distinct organism. So that's the scientific information that we have regarding human development. Now, regarding the philosophy, the philosophy tells us that, well, the science tells us that we know that it's a human being from fertilization, but the philosophy tells us that that uh, the unborn human being is valuable and has and, and deserves human rights like all of us do. There is no fundamental change between the embryo that I once was and the adult that I am today that would have justified killing me at that earlier stage but wouldn't justify killing me now. Uh, Stephen Schwartz, who's a pro-life philosopher, wrote a book called The Moral Question of Abortion in which he came up with this, uh, with this idea and it has the evidence fled, uh, which, basically, which basically summarizes the main differences between an embryo and an adult, that their size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. We know that the unborn is much smaller, uh, much less developed, in a different environment, and much more dependent on the mother than I am as an adult. But none of these differences justify being able to kill the unborn organism then, but not killing me now. So the philosophy of human development basically shows that because there is no fundamental change between the embryo and the adult, then at all stages of development, I was the same individual. And since my right to life uh, is intrinsic to me as a human being, I was a human being and the same individual of fertilization, then I had a right to life at fertilization just like I do now. And so that's the, the scientific and philosophical argument for the pro-life position in, in a nutshell. Wow. You know, so it, it seems to be that if a person makes the argument against life uh, in the womb, then they would also need to make make the argument against life outside the womb, you know, because it has all the same characteristics, it would appear. Right, yeah, that's, uh, that, yeah, that's actually one of, the, one of the main things we point out, too, when a, an abortion choice person tries to argue that the unborn organism lacks some property that we have, and that's what justifies killing them. Well, in every case, it's going to justify killing somebody outside the womb, uh, which is, you know, which is not something that we want to come to a conclusion to. We want to, uh, we want to uh, figure out what it is that grounds our, our human value and what grounds it equally. And so coming up with some sort of, uh, of justification like self-awareness or consciousness or something like that is going to argue for killing somebody outside the womb. And so that's reason enough to reject the, the abortion choice position. Wow. Wonderful points being made there. Absolutely fantastic. How do you, you know, how do you respond? Uh, you know, and I think you've given uh, some inclination already about how we can we can we can respond to this objection. But how would you personally respond to the claim that the woman has a right to her body and is thereby justified in having an abortion? Yeah, uh, regarding bodily rights claims. Uh, first of all, the first thing to say to that is that if we can establish, as I've laid out an argument for, that the unborn human being is a full human person, then bodily rights does not justify killing that person. 
uh, you know, there's the slogan that says, uh, my right to swing my fist ends where your nose begins. Uh, well, that's because I have a right to bodily autonomy, but my right to, to bodily autonomy does not cover the right to harm or kill another human being. So, so a, a woman trying to justify abortion based on bodily rights, if the, if the pro-life argument is correct, then just, then it can't be justified on bodily rights claims. Um, so that, that's, that's one response. There are other things that we can use to show that, that this argument doesn't work. Uh, usually they, um, they, they, um, point back to a philosopher who wrote an article called A Defense of Abortion in 1972 named Judith Travis Thompson, who, uh, came up with a violinist scenario to attempt to, to justify this bodily rights position. And she essentially says, you know, suppose you wake up in a hospital one day and you're back to back in bed with the famous unconscious violinist. Uh, you try to get up, but you realize that you're connected at the kidneys to the violinist. The curator of the hospital runs in and says, you know, thank goodness you're awake. I never would have permitted this had I known, but um, this violinist is suffering from a severe kidney ailment. The Society of Music Lovers has canvassed all potential kidney donors and found that you're the only available match. So they kidnap you, and they plug you into this violinist. Now, I'd love to unplug you, but that would kill the violinist. And violinists are people, too, so I can't unplug you. But don't worry, it's only for nine months, and then you can go on your, on your way after that. So Thompson is using this scenario to show that it may be that you have a moral obligation to remain plugged in, or you may not. But even if you do have a moral obligation, you should not be legally compelled to remain plugged in. Wow. And so that, that analogy seems powerful on the surface, but when you really start to examine it, there are a number of disanalogies between the violinist and pregnancy. And, uh, these, these, uh, and, and so basically these disanalogies show that the violinist scenario is not like pregnancy in the relevant way that Thompson needs it to be in order to justify abortion. And there are a lot of disanalogies I could talk about, but I'll just cover a couple of the most important ones. But number one, there's the responsibility aspect that you are not responsible for the, for the kidney ailment that the violinist finds himself with. And so since you're not responsible for his ailment, you're not responsible to keep him alive. Uh, and, and so in the, in the case of pregnancy, in the vast majority of pregnancies, the woman is responsible for committing an act that results in the child's creation and in placing the child in a state of dependence upon her. Since she is responsible not just for the child's creation, but for placing the child in a state of dependence upon her, then she owes that child uh, basic care, like food, nutrition, uh, you know, the environment of her womb, etc. So there's the responsibility aspect. There's also the uh, the direct killing versus indirect killing aspect. If you unplug from the violinist, you are not the active agent in the violinist's death. The kidney ailment is. You may be indirectly responsible for his death because you're unplugging, but you're not directly responsible for the death. It's the kidney ailment that kills him, not you. But in the case of pregnancy, you do actually have to, uh, you do actually have to dismember the, uh, the unborn organism in order to have the abortion. So you're actually directly killing the unborn child through the act of abortion in order to, uh, quote, unplug, end quote, from the child. And so I think our, our, our intuitions would be pretty different if we adjust the violinist scenario slightly to say that instead of unplugging, you actually have to dismember the violinist before you can unplug from it. I think if we change it to say that you actually have to kill the violinist in order to unplug, I think our intuition then becomes very different, and you don't have the right to unplug from them if you have to kill them in order to do so. And so those are just a couple of the disanalogies between the two. 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, <laughs> I, I, I get. I guess you could also say, you know, to, to the woman directly as well, saying, you know, that 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 you're not you're not dismembering a mass in your body. You're dismembering a, a life, just as the violinist you were mentioning. You know, you're 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 taking away a human life, and um, it appears to me that that. Um, by by just dehumanizing the fetus, then then it it makes, I guess the process go a lot, uh, with with a lot less conviction or a lot less guilt, uh, you may say, and I and I guess that's perhaps would you think that's the reason that's popularized today? Yeah, I think um, I think referring to the unborn organism as merely a clump of cells is a way to dehumanize the unborn organism that's developing, and that makes it then. A lot easier to justify killing them. Um, you know, I, I don't. I, to make this analogy, I'm not saying that pro-choice people are like Nazis, but we actually saw a lot of the same things going on going on in Nazi Germany when they actually um, they they had the Holocaust in which they were killing Jews, uh, homosexuals, gypsies, and other undesirable people. And the way that they were that they were convincing people to do it was that they were using dehumanizing language and right. and convincing the, the people that they were subhuman. And so that's the way that you can convince people to uh, to allow the killing of human beings is if you dehumanize them. And I think that's exactly what's going on when someone uses language like uh, calling the unborn organism just a clump of cells, especially if they're referring to, you know, an embryo um, probably around, um, you know, develop, human development is, is pretty rapid in the womb. And so... Uh, even though the, the clump of cells at the beginning is still still looks like a human should at that stage of its development, it starts to take in the more recognizable human features pretty early on. And so, when the when the earliest surgical abortions happen, the unborn organism still has um, distinctly human features. So it's really not uh, it's really not accurate to say at any point, at least when we're talking about surgical abortions, that you're killing a clump of cells, um, because you know fundamentally. Uh, at, at the at the subatomic level, all we are are just clumps of cells. Mm, so, that's a good point. so it's really just dehumanizing <laughs> language when they when they refer to an unborn organism as a clump of cells in order to justify abortion. Well, I love the way you put that because that's true. Because if if you were just going to make the fetus into a clump of cells, then theoretically all of us are a clump of cells. You know, and yeah. and I like how you put that, and that's something that's often. Uh, it's, it's, it's not considered by many people making those arguments that we too uh, could be considered the same. Now, what do you say, often the objection uh, comes forth about uh, uh, abortion as it relates to instances of, say, rape and incest and things of this, uh, things of this nature. Uh, how do you respond uh, when this objection is given? Yeah, the, the rape objection is a difficult objection because obviously rape is a terrible traumatic situation and it's not a situation that we wish upon anyone. Right. Um, there, there are two different kinds of people who raise the rape objection. Number one is what uh, Scott Lusendorf refers to as the crusader. It's someone who doesn't really care about people in the case of rape, they're just bringing up rape in an attempt to trap you. And for that kind of person, um, all it takes is just a, a simple question. Okay, let's suppose that we're both legislators, and I was going to sign, uh, I was going to sign a, a bill into law that says we will we will make all abortions illegal 
accept abortions in the case of rape. We'll leave those abortions legal. Would you sign that with me? And, of course, the person will say no because, uh, because they really think abortion should always be legal. They're just using it as a situation to try and trap you. So for that kind of person, you're really, uh, you, know, you can expose uh, that they're being disingenuous by trying, to use, uh, by trying to use rape victims to make a political point. And so you can, you can go on from there. But then, of course, there are people who legitimately care about women in the case of rape because a lot of people you talk to will probably know someone who was raped. And so for that kind of person, it requires a lot more delicacy. We, we really want them to understand that we care about people in the case of rape. Right. That, uh, you know, we, we want to take the time to explain that, uh, you know, we, we understand that rape is a terrible trauma and that uh, we feel that, you know, the rapist should be punished to the fullest extent of the law. And oftentimes, uh, a rapist, when they are punished, is not punished severely enough. But then the question remains, why should the child pay for his life for the crimes of his father? If we think back to the response that I gave to the bodily rights objection, um, that regarding the direct versus indirect killing example, the, the problem with, with abortions in the case of rape is that you do have to directly kill and dismember the unborn child. And the, the unborn child, like the woman, is another victim of the rape. And so, uh, as Frank Beckwith points out in his book, Defending Life, there's a simple, uh, a simple concept in ethics that we cannot kill person A to benefit person B. That's not a lack of compassion for person A. It's just an unwillingness to commit murder. So even though a woman has been raped and it's a terrible and traumatic situation, we cannot justify abortion in that case because we're still having to kill an innocent human being who has committed no wrong against, uh, against anyone, certainly not one deserving being absolutely absolutely and uh, and and let, and let me just also say as well I mean rape is a horrific horrific crime and and I would agree with you that there needs to be stricter punishments on individuals who commit rape and so this is not you know so no one that misunderstands us we're not saying that that we're not trying to justify instances like this you know rape is a horrible crime and needs to be punished mm-hmm. But as you would say, two wrongs don't make a right. You know, killing an innocent human being over a, over a horrific event um, doesn't justify the murder of the child. And um, so, you know, and, and I want to give you, we still have plenty of time here. I want to give you plenty of time. And, and I would like maybe even to look at, uh, along with this question, maybe if you want to bring forth some other objections that you're hearing today as well going along with this but you know as you know everything seems to be politically driven i mean we're living in a hysterical time where it just seems like it's getting more and more bizarre as we go along uh recently i heard the argument that if abortion is not legalized if it's made illegal then women will have abortions in dangerous conditions uh, and so it needs to be legalized so that they don't have them in dangerous conditions. How would you respond to this claim? And let me just open it up uh, to, to add any other major objections that you hear and give you the opportunity to respond to those objections as well. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll tackle the objection you raised first, and then I, I can um, talk about a few more. Um, so regarding the objection that if we make abortion illegal, then women are just going to commit abortion anyway, and often in dangerous situations. Um, this, this is what, what we can consider just a trivial claim. Like, you know, if, if the claim that, that it doesn't really say anything new or unique, if it's just 
it's just the way law works. That as, as long as there are things that are illegal, there will always be lawbreakers. Uh, we have rape and murder and theft, which are illegal, but we still have people committing theft and rape and murder. And so making abortion illegal is not going to eliminate all instances of abortion. And that, that's just, it's just not going to happen, and no pro-life person actually thinks that it will happen that way. But it's still something that we may need to make illegal, because if the unborn are valuable human beings, as pro-life people argue that they are, then to take the life of one of these um, to take the life of one of these human beings uh, is something that needs to be punished. And so, uh, and so it's still something that needs to be made illegal, even if you're willing to eliminate all instances of, of the act from happening. So, that, that's, so yeah, that, that's the basic response I would off, offer to this. And regarding uh, women possibly having uh, dangerous abortions, um, the way that, that Scott Glissenorf responds to this is just essentially to say, that the law should not be faulted for making it more dangerous or more difficult to kill innocent human beings. And I think that's probably just the simplest response we can offer. Um, in fact, we can actually point to some of the statistics before 1973. Uh, according to the Centers for Disease Control, in 1972, just the year before Roe v. Wade was legalized, uh, only about 32 women died from illegal abortion. Um, Mary Calderon, who was a representative of Planned Parenthood, uh, in the early 70s, spoke at a Planned Parenthood conference and say, and basically said that uh, 90% or more of all abortions are done by doctors in good standing in the community. So even while abortion was illegal, um, for the most part, women were not participating in dangerous abortions. They were they were being done by doctors, mm-hmm. and even and you know for women who could pay, they would often be referred out of the country for uh, you know to go have an abortion in a country that was legal. So even if abortion is driven underground again, there's no reason to think that it will actually become difficult. In fact, Bernard Nathanson, in his book, Aborting America, talks about that it wasn't legalizing abortion that made abortion safer. It was advances in medical technology, such as the discovery of penicillin, that made it safer. So he says, even if abortion is driven underground again, there's absolutely no reason to think that it will be dangerous if if done that way, because there will still be, uh, even if you have to get it... um, through unscrupulous methods, there will still be pills that a woman can take in order to have the abortion. She won't have to, you know, jam any, uh, any you know, rustic coat hanger or anything up there in order to have the abortion. So, it, so it's just not a reasonable argument to argue that if abortion is made illegal again, that, um, that women will just be, you know, dying in droves from dangerous illegal abortions. That, you know, obviously we don't want any woman to die, but, um, but we can't also fault the law for making it more dangerous or more difficult to to kill an innocent human being. So that's, that's the response to that, uh, basically. Um, so, yeah, there are a few more objections I could talk about. Um, before I talk about that, um, I just want to um, just illustrate real quick that I, I've already given the scientific and philosophical case for the pro-life position, but we can, we can really boil it down into a, into a simple logical argument, and we compile this into what, uh, into what logicians call a syllogism. A syllogism is just basically uh, two premises that lead to a conclusion. And a syllogism can either be valid or invalid, or it can be sound or unsound. In order for a syllogism to be valid, then the conclusion has to be implied by the premises. If the conclusion is not implied by the premises, the argument is invalid. In order for an argument to be sound, the argument must be valid, and, and both of its premises must be true. So in order to reject an argument, you must either prove that it's invalid because the conclusion does not follow from the premises, 
uh, or you must prove that either one or both of the premises are false, thereby making the argument unsound. So the simple pro-life argument is uh, that the first premise states that uh, it, is, it is immoral to intentionally kill an innocent human being. The second premise states abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Therefore, the conclusion is abortion is immoral. Amen. And so that's just our simple pro-life syllogism that an abortion choice person must respond to in order to, in order to, re- to refute the pro-life case. And then they need to argue for their own case in order to prove that. So it so seems like... most abortion choice arguments that you receive are going to avoid that argument, and they're going to argue beside the point rather than arguing the point itself. So, so with, uh, with, that, with that argument, okay. I'm not trying to interrupt you, but with that argument, do, do people try to wiggle around that argument by, which I know you said that people try to avoid the argument, but do they mm-hmm. try to attack the second premise? I mean, because obviously the first premise stands to reason. Would they attack the second one with the whole argument with the cells and, or like being a, the fetus being a lump of cells? How, how, how do opponents usually try to, to attack that argument? Yeah, so in order to attack the pro-life argument, you could attack the first premise, and believe it or not, uh, whenever I do outreach on college campuses, I do actually sometimes get people trying to respond to the first argument. They try to argue that it's not always wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Oh, wow. Um, you, you know, so for those people, yeah, you, you, sometimes uh, you just try to humor them, and you try to argue why human beings are valuable, but sometimes um, they, they could just be trying to get, uh, you know, hold their intellectual turf and not give up any ground of the pro-life person. But most often you'll get someone trying to attack the second premise. Uh, and yeah, so sometimes they'll use the dehumanizing clump of cells language to show that it's not really a human being. Or sometimes they'll try to go a little more philosophical and argue that abortion doesn't kill an innocent human being because in order to be human in the morally relevant sense, you have to, uh, you know, you have to be self-aware or conscious or something like that. So, uh, but, so, the more common abortion choice arguments uh, try to get around the argument entirely. So, for example, you'll, you'll often hear someone say, for example, that uh, some women need abortion because they're too poor to afford a child, and so they need abortion um, so that they don't you know, go into bankruptcy and they, they can, uh, you know, so that they're not trying to raise a child that they can't afford, basically. And so this really avoids the pro-life argument. And the way that we can show that is by using a technique that Scott Kusendorf developed called, um, called Trot Out the Toddler. And Trot Out the Toddler does not make the case for the pro-life position, but it does help to show the, the abortion choice person that they've kind of gone off topic, and it brings them back onto the central question of what is the unborn, because that's what we're arguing from. The unborn are human beings. It's wrong to intentionally kill a human being. Uh, therefore, abortion is wrong because it intentionally kills a human being. So in order to cut out the toddler, all we do is we take their situation, for example, uh, that some women are too poor to afford a child, and say, okay, so let's fast forward that a couple of years. Let's say now instead of an unborn human being, we're talking now about a toddler. And let's say this woman, uh, her husband just left her, and she's lost her job, and now she doesn't feel financially stable enough to raise a child. Can we then allow her to kill, to kill the toddler? Of course, the response would be, well, no, we can't allow that. So then your response is just a simple question. Why can't we allow that? And then, of course, the, the actual response would be, because the toddler is a human being. So, that, uh, so then that is the question. The question then is, what is the unborn? Because if the unborn is a full human being 
like the toddler is, then we can't justify killing the unborn for a reason that we couldn't justify killing the toddler. Mm. So if someone tries to get around this pro-life syllogism by arguing an irrelevant argument, um, you know, not that poverty isn't important. Poverty is important, sure. And we don't want to downplay the importance of being able to provide a good stable home for a child. All we're trying to show with Proud of the Toddler is that, uh, is that um, poverty is not an acceptable reason to kill somebody. And so by arguing that it is, they're actually assuming what they're trying to prove, which is a logical fallacy called begging the question. Mm. They're, they're assuming that the unborn is not human because they wouldn't make that argument if they thought the unborn was, was human. And so for somebody who tries to sidestep the pro-life argument by using some sort of situation like poverty, Proud of the Toddler is a good way to kind of bring the conversation back into discussing what's important in the abortion discussion. <laughs> Brother, I tell you, even if, uh, I, t- I tell you, with with what you've presented, even if I was a person who, uh, which I am strongly pro-life, but even if I were to be a person who was pro-choice, it seems like this is pretty much and nearly a foolproof argument because if you can demonstrate the fact that the child in the womb is a human being, and then you move on to the argument you presented, it, it seems pretty foolproof. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I would say it is. And uh, yeah, and for the most part, uh, most abortion choice arguments really miss the mark entirely. Um, the problem, though, is that even though we can present what I what I take to be a, a pretty airtight argument, I mean, it's logically foolproof. Uh, you know, it doesn't create any sort of logical fallacy, so it's definitely a valid argument. Um, you know, we have to prove them that it's sound, that both premises are, are correct, they're true, and I think that we can do that in spades. But the problem is, is that when you talk to an abortion choice person, there's, there's often some kind of emotional barrier right. that keeps them from making the intellectual leap into accepting your argument. And so it can, it can often take uh, multiple, multiple tries to try and, and convince this person of the truth of your argument. You know, because it, it might be the case that maybe they had an abortion as a, as a child, or maybe a loved one had an abortion, or maybe they had a friend who wanted to go in for an abortion, and they, they drove their friend for an abortion. And so accepting our argument would mean that they would have to accept the fact that they're the person they care about uh, killed their own child. Right. So there can often be an emotional hang-up that prevents them from making that leap. And so uh, so our our goal when we talk to people, you know, at on college campuses or wherever you're talking to, I'm not necessarily, I'm not necessarily talking to sidewalk counselors, because sidewalk counselors who are in front of the abortion clinic definitely have an urgency about what they're doing. Um, you know, that, that's, not, that's not my niche in the movement. I'm speaking here of people that we talk to on my college campuses, people that we can spend time with. Uh, our goal is not, uh, is not to convince them right there on the spot. Our goal is to do what Greg Kokel and his book <laughs> Tactics tells us, that we're to put a pebble in their shoe. Right. If, if someone has a pebble in their shoe, it's something that you know, kind of bothers them. It's something that they can't ignore until they actually take care of it. So when we're out there on a college campus, especially with someone who has some kind of emotional hang-up, what we want to do is we just want to put a pebble in their shoe. We just want to give them something that they can think about, something that, that keeps nagging at them that they can't get rid of. And, and then sometime down the road, maybe a few days, a few weeks, even a few months, they might actually see value in what you said. So, so our goal when talking to people out here on, on college campuses is a lot more modest than trying to convince them on the spot, which rarely happens. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's really what our, what our goal is with each conversation, just to give them that thing to think about. Well, instead of our seventh question we had listed that we were talking about, uh, about the most convincing argument, and, and maybe if you want to address that, feel free to do so. But 
speaking of the emotional side, uh, you know, because it, it seems to me that logically, it, it, the argument for for the pro life cause is pretty airtight. And as you mentioned, the emotional side is is the most problematic. But and I find myself, you know, when when dealing with people uh, in in evangelism through apologetics, that that often it's the case that there's more of an emotional reason why people don't accept, you know, claims of the Bible as it would seem to be the case with uh, with the pro life cause. How how do you and others reach out emotionally to individuals? To um, to seek to bring healing and seek to to, to show them uh, the importance of the pro life movement. Yeah, when you encounter someone who has an emotional hang up like that, um, someone like me, uh, I have no experience with abortion. So I, you know, I I probably know women in my life who've had abortions, uh, you know, who are close friends of mine, but uh, they haven't told me for whatever reason. I have met post-abortive women. And so because I don't have uh, necessarily that background, and if I'm out on a college campus and I'm with some of the post-abortive women, then uh, I can actually ask the person I'm talking to if they'd like to talk to someone who's been through that situation and can understand. Mm. Uh, if I'm you know, just somewhere in my own personal life where I'm not with uh, anyone who's post-abortive or out on a college campus where we don't have someone with that history, then at the very least, even though I can't understand where they're coming from, I can at least just listen to them tell their story if, if they want to tell me. Uh, obviously, not everyone might want to talk to me about it, but I have had uh, I have had encounters on college campuses where women have trusted me enough to share a pretty personal story with me about that. So the best thing to do is really just to listen. And uh, even if you don't get to share your pro-life case with them, uh, at the very least, uh, you know, you might be the first person they've ever talked to about that. And so that might be cathartic for them. And it might allow them to take another pro-life person somewhere in the future more seriously based on their interaction that they had with you. So, so that, that's really the way that I would handle it, uh, not having that experience in my own life. is I would just listen and you know, not, try to, not try to convince them of anything, but just allow them to talk as, as, they, as they need to, basically. And that's a great point. And, you know, and I think... Um... You know, and that's something we want to convey over to individuals who are listening to this podcast that we're not trying to condemn individuals who have may have already had an abortion, but we're we're seeking to stop uh, the uh, well, really, let's just say murder of of innocent lives is what it amounts to mm-hmm. to being, and so it's not a matter right. of condemning people who have already committed the act. It's a matter of of uh, standing in the gap uh, and, and opposing the uh, further murder of innocent individuals. What are some practical ways uh, that Christians can help the pro-life cause? What are some practical things that maybe we have some uh, individuals listening to the podcast and they're thinking to themselves, well, what can I do to help? Uh, What are some practical ways that people can get involved? Yeah, so um, so there are a few different practical ways that, uh, that anyone can get involved, whether they're Christians or not. Well, obviously, if you're a Christian, then you know prayer obviously is a, is a very powerful and potent uh, tool. But even for non-Christians, uh, there are a few different ways. That number one, uh, we can educate ourselves, and you know they've taken the first step by just listening to this podcast. Uh, obviously, uh, we couldn't hope to have an exhaustive discussion of the abortion issue on just an hour-long podcast. Um, so they can you know find other podcasts. They can they can find me online. Uh, I 
I write articles for the Life Training Institute blog, as well as for my own personal blog and a few other pro-life uh, blogs like Secular Pro-Life. Uh, I have some articles on life, news, and some others. Uh, or they can find maybe a local uh, presentation by a pro-life speaker or organization like Justice for All to go and attend their training seminars. So educating yourself is, is an excellent way to get started. Uh, number two, they can have these discussions and people in their own sphere of influence, whether it be with friends or coworkers or classmates or whomever, family members, uh, whoever it would be, they can have these discussions with those people. Uh, number three is also to help financially support. Um, as uh, Greg Cunningham, uh, who is the director of the Center for Bioethical Reform, tells us there are a lot more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. So even if a pro-life person doesn't have the time really to engage uh, too much in, in pro-life activism, uh, a very good, very important way they can help is by financially supporting uh, pro-life organizations and speakers. And because, uh, you know, pro-life organizations like Life Training Institute will, will send uh, pro-life speakers to colleges and high schools and, and make the case for life to these students who, who desperately need to, to know. And so those are really three of the most important ways that anybody can get involved and, and make a, an impact for life. Sounds great. Sounds great. Maybe there's, uh, you know, someone who is, uh, you know, uh, listening to this podcast and um, they, they maybe they feel discouraged. Maybe it's someone who has... Uh, is 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 trying to speak out, but they they're, they're being met with opposition. What words of encouragement uh, would you provide uh, individuals who were who are working for the pro life cause? Obviously, there's a lot of opposition to the pro life movement in today's society. But what would you offer as a word of encouragement to individuals who are fighting the good fight? Yeah, um, when we're discussing. Uh, the topic of abortion with people. It can be a very emotional, very contentious topic. And I'm speaking from personal experience here that it, it can be very easy, it can be a very big temptation to lose your cool with somebody who either just doesn't seem to be getting it or is or appears to be uh, going around in circles with you intentionally, not really taking you seriously. And that can be kind of frustrating. Uh, the most important thing just to remember is that it's just to remember those emotional roadblocks, that the reason that people don't uh, don't usually have, don't usually take these conversations seriously is because they have these emotional hang-ups. And so it, it really needs patience on the part of the pro-life advocate uh, not to lose your cool with these people. Uh, sometimes there is, there, sometimes there are legitimate times when you just need to say, you know what, this conversation isn't fruitful. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to waste my time here anymore. So good day and, um, you know, good luck. Uh, so, so there are times when we do need to end these conversations prematurely if we don't feel that they're going anywhere. But, uh, but oftentimes, often, just having patience with somebody really pays off because the, the more you go, the more it might start to click in their in their mind, and they might start to to see the re the, the reasonability of the pro life view. So, yeah, that, that's really the most important thing I would probably say about it. 
Clinton Wilcox, thank you so much for being with us today. I want to also thank uh, Devin and Melissa Pellu. Uh, they're the ones that introduced us, and I want to thank them as well. And, uh, you know, they, they do a great work. Of course, Melissa, uh, she's on the front lines down there in Charlotte, North Carolina, and, and uh, thank her for her work there as well. Uh, Clinton, thank you again for taking your time to uh, be with us here on the Bellator Christie Podcast. It's been a joy and privilege, and, uh, and, and we hope to get you back on here real soon. Yeah, uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, for Clinton Wilcox, this is Brian Chilton. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. God bless, and remember, the truth shall set you free. The Bellator Christie Podcast is a production of bellatorchristie.com and is protected under Creative Commons copyright. All rights are reserved. The views expressed by guests on the podcast are of those expressing them and may not represent those of the host Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The theme played on the podcast is the song Epic and is produced royalty-free by Bensound Studios, found at bensound.com. Visit bellatorchristie.com and subscribe by entering your email to receive all the articles and podcasts in your inbox absolutely free. This podcast can also be found on several podcatchers including iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. We thank you for joining us today. For Brian Chilton, this is Burl Childers saying God bless and we'll see you next time as we enter into the arena of ideas.